it's Jess. We're back today with a new guest, and I couldn't be more excited to have Casey Sheffer on the podcast today. Casey uh, serves as the Director of Private Brands for Retail Business Services under the Ahold Delahaye's umbrella. She has over 17 years of progressive experience in brand strategy, development, and deployment. In fact, she started at an agency, believe it or not. She oversees a portfolio of over $1.5 billion, yes, that is billion with a B, in private brands and products for the organization, and she drives the vision and strategy for the giant company's brands, including Giant Brand, Nature's Promise, and many more. As part of that management, she supports retail brands to develop and execute business plans and annual budgets that drive private brand sales and margin from product development through launch, including price promotion, placement, and marketing plans. Welcome to the podcast, Casey. We're so excited to have you. Welcome to the Fork and Lens podcast, brought to you by Viscal. So, um, obviously overseeing $1.5 billion, which is more than Hershey does in a year, which mm-hmm. is kind of insane when you start to think about those numbers. Um, but it's a big task to manage private brands and products kind of, you know, in that extreme quantity. And so you're curating, you're marketing all of these things, you're overseeing those um, exercises and activities, if you will. How have you built the brand awareness? I mean, $1.5 billion is nothing to, like, scoff at. So how are you building brand awareness around all these private label brands, from Nature's Promise to Taste mm-hmm. of Inspiration to Giant Brand to – there's so many. Yeah. So to put it in context, we have a few different brands in the portfolio, the biggest of which is our first label. That, mm-hmm. That's kind of what we call it internally. The customer would call it the Giant Brand. That represents 85% of our sales. Um, So that's where a lion's share of everything comes from. Right. So when you think about that, that's one in every three items that sold through the register is coming from that brand. So it kind of sells itself. (laughs) Which is insane. (laughs) In a way. Um, The awareness is there because it is so prevalent across the store. We're in Mm -hmm. every category. Um, and I probably can't give you the most accurate count, but we're somewhere around 7,500 items across the store under that brand. Um, so certainly there's no other CPG or national right. branded item that's just throughout the store to that degree or to that scale. Right. So that certainly helps. Yeah, I think that's the starting point. That's true. So does that 7,500 or sorry, 75,000? 7,500. Oh, okay. 7,500. So does that include like your limited time offers and those sorts of items that phase in and out? during the seasons? Yeah, that's kind of all in. So about 85% of it is under that giant brand or internally we refer to it as our first label because it's kind of our workhorse, right? Right. It's the one that has the lion's share of the sales. Um, Next to that, we have Nature's Promise, Mm -hmm. which I would say is about 10 to 12% of sales. um, And that represents our organic and free from offerings. Great equity behind that brand. It's been around, I, I do believe we launched it 16 years ago now. So it's it, hard to believe. Yeah. So, you know, to the credit of um, All Hold and Generations Past, when they launched that brand, the company was surely ahead of their time. Yeah. And so we're just building on their backs because it's it's been around for a decade and a half. 
um, really before organic was a mainstream conversation. So um, we have over a thousand items in Nature's Promise. Uh, and because it's a unified look, it's very clean. It's very distinctive on the shelf. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy for customers to identify it um, and understand what it is. Right. Uh, and so Nature's Promise is a brand that was within our legacy All Hold USA stores, um, which included the companies of Stop and Shop, um, Giant of Carlisle, now known as the Giant Company, and Giant Food in Maryland. And then uh, a few years ago was also brought into Food Lion in Hannaford mm -hmm. and continues to do extremely well. So yeah. um, in that case, again, because customers can see it throughout the store, they can see the consistency behind it. Um, we get a lot of credit and acknowledgement behind that brand as well. Okay. Um, and we do a lot to make sure we understand customer perceptions behind our brands. And mm -hmm. Nature's Promise historically remains among our strongest, if not the strongest in our portfolio, because customers trust us mm -hmm. uh, and they trust the brand. And so we're, we're very adamant to protect the integrity of what that brand has to offer and every product that's going to be put into a Nature's Promise package. So I'm going to go back to what you were just talking about with Food Lion and Hannaford. And obviously, Giant Food, the Giant Company, and Stop and Shop were all in line. And then Food Lion and Hannaford kind of joined in later in the game. So you went through that process of figuring out what had the most brand equity in Food Lion and Hannaford versus Giant Food, the Giant Company, and Stop and Shop. What did that process kind of look like, and how did you figure out, okay, this has better brand um, equity than this brand that we have in this line of stores? Yep, so the whole reason we were undergoing the question of what should be um, Ahold Delhaye's, USA's, um, go-forward brand for the organic and free-from segment was a debate. Right. Everyone is going to be passionate about the brands that they help launch and they help grow. And we certainly didn't want to make any decisions lightly. So we undertook pretty rigorous, I, I would call it, mm -hmm. very rigorous uh, research with customers up and down the East Coast to understand what would be the risk and what would be the potential upside for us to move in one direction or the other. Right. So um, Legacy Delhaze USA had uh, a similar brand called Nature's Place, ironically a pretty <laughs> similar name. Right. Um, and so we made sure to test with Food Lion, Hannaford, as well as the Legacy I'll Hold USA customers, um, light, moderate, and heavy customers to say, where, what should we do with this? Where should we go? And to make sure that we were going into that decision eyes wide open because it's a lot at stake. Resoundingly, though, customers who use the brand were um, patrons of the brand. They were highly loyal. Those who, for whom the brand would have been new, so the Food Line and Hannaford customers mm -hmm. said, I do believe I would prefer this. I think I would be more inclined to potentially purchase more or, or can, you know, attribute more of my basket to this brand because it conveys more trust. Um, it conveys freshness in a way that perhaps the previous brand did not. And so, of course, those aren't the only two measures. We, we made right. sure we clicked a lot of boxes to definitively recommend to the business and to the leadership that this is the direction we should be going. Yeah. And anytime you make a, a change to a brand, obviously a lot's tied into that from transitioning packaging labels mm -hmm. to making sure that customers understand the storyline mm -hmm. and can make that transition with you. So uh, it's never a quick decision and it's not never an easy or quick transition in right. making that. Um, but I do know it, it's 
been successful in Hanover in Hannaford and Food Lion since the transition, which has been pretty recent, mm-hmm. actually, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so I think it, you know, substantiates the decision that we made. Yeah. So obviously in the past couple of years, we've seen the transition of um, cleaner labels and uh giant brand and even nature's promise for that matter you know really touting lower sodium no high fructose no high fructose corn syrup there we go (laughs) it's like a mouth mouthful on friday afternoon um less sugar like all of these more kind of clean label clean ingredients mindset what caused you to move in that direction and how much of an impact has it had yeah so we've always had really terrific leaders who have impressed upon us the need to focus on always creating better products for our customers mm-hmm. i'll tell you in our industry it's pretty easy to say hey if i make that decision it's going to be more expensive and so it's not a path i want to go down mm-hmm. um, and i think partially we can thank the fact that we have some european influence to help guide us in making decisions that really ultimately are better for the customer and better for the environment and cleaning up our labels And so if we think back to a few years ago with um, Ahold USA, the conversation was around reformulating our products to remove uh, sodium and sugar. Mm -hmm. Um, Internally, we kind of deemed this health by stealth because we wanted to do it in a way where we could make these reductions happen without the customer being able to distinguish that we had materially changed the experience for them. So um, that proved to be successful for us because we could do it in ways that were really, uh, you know, not in the consciousness of our customer, but we knew would give them a a better product for them at the end of the day. Um, But that's migrated a little bit. And so um, the path that we're in now, and and our organization has talked about this pretty openly in the marketplace, is that we're making a commitment holistically to clean our labels by the year 2025. Mm -hmm. And so beyond just sodium and sugar, those reductions spread more broadly and include things like high fructose corn syrup, um, artificial preservatives, synthetic colors. So it's a a much broader stroke um, to take our 7,500 plus items (laughs) all through the process of of getting them clean. So um, 2025 might feel like it's a long ways away, but when you break that down into what does an actual project plan look like to get through all of those items, we have our work cut out for us. I mean, that's more than a thousand items per year. Yeah, it's a lot. It's probably like closer to 1,500 a year. And so when you put that body of work into the context of um, typical item development, which I always coin as the lifeblood of our Mm -hmm. success because customers' needs change, their desires change, and so you're always going to have the tail end of an assortment that's no longer relevant. And Mm -hmm. so you need to fill that pipeline with new items that will become more relevant um, and desirable from your customer base. We need to keep doing that work to build new items while we're taking existing items and cleaning them through as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a, a lot of work. We, you know, touch a lot of items, adjust a lot of items every year on top of making sure we have that healthy pipeline of new ideas coming through all the time. So how do you identify new ideas for new products? Yeah, it can come from anywhere. <laughs> because, I mean, we kind of get a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look of what's coming out, what's new. Um, I know that you attend a lot of the shows that we attend as an agency, which always has new stuff going, mm-hmm. like mushroom jerky and other <laughs> weird things. But... Um, how do you go, like, how do you say that's something that our customers are going to want? Yeah, so it, it starts, I think, from a place of understanding 
who your customer is. Now, right. in my world, I, I work for Retail Business Services, which is a company of Ajo Del Hayes. So when I say my customer, my customer um, is the brand, is, right. is the retail brand. So in my case, I oversee the team that um, supports the giant company. So when I think of them as my customer, I want to know who their customer is, what makes her tick, what it is that she's looking for. And that becomes my first filter mm-hmm. of what are the things I should be out there looking for. Um, and when we say ideas can come from anywhere or anyone, that really is true. Yeah. We develop about 600 new items a year just for the giant company. Um, and so those ideas, and I can probably rattle off some off the top of my head that come from various places from associate ideas to our suppliers are out there developing for us on our behalf. And so they're bringing new ideas to mm-hmm. us to, you're right, I walked the PLMA show and we saw a supplier who had an interesting idea and we engaged them to do business with us. So right. um, I think it does start from the place of understanding ultimately who you're serving and yeah. it's the shopper who's going through the store and her needs are changing all the time. Right. So how do we make sure we're continuously thinking on her behalf and bringing her things that satisfy her ever-changing needs? Yeah. And then, of course, I think of the products that phase out because you're phasing other things in. So obviously there hits a point of like, okay, this isn't performing well. And then you almost have to go through this thought process of, is it not performing well because of a scent, because of a flavor profile or, you know, whatever the nuance is, or is it just something that she's not interested in at all? And then I'm sure that you go through kind of like this market research of, okay, well, why isn't it performing well? Yeah, certainly a lot of blood, sweat, and tears go into developing new items. (laughs) So when you have to make the decision to pull them off the shelf, you don't want to take that lightly. Yeah. Um, So when you have items that begin not to perform, I'll say uh, up to speed with their peer group within that category, (laughs) then you have to ask yourself questions and take a hard look to say, well, why is it? Could I have done something? Am I not doing something to support it in the way I should? Um, am I giving it the right attention, the right promotional plan, wh- whatever that is? Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, those items are owed the benefit of an analysis to say, yes, it makes sense to pull this off. It's right. not worth its place on the shelf. We could replace it with something that would be better for the customer. And it happens all the time. You always have a tail that you're evaluating because you always have a new yeah. set that's ready to come in and not everything can live forever on the same finite space on the shelf. It can't. And then I, I guess my question to you would be, do you watch the trends of what name brands are doing and then kind of say, okay, that's selling for them. So we should have a store brand of that. Yeah, we roughly know, um, we, we do take cues off the national brand and we roughly know what percent of sales should be going to them versus us. So we do have okay. kind of a rough benchmark. Nice. That might vary category to category, but right. holistically we kind of know where we should be. So within a given category, we see that the growth is exponentially coming from a branded side mm-hmm. and we aren't really seeing our fair share. Then that's definitely a red flag to go in and figure out what's happening there mm-hmm. and what's driving our decline or our lack of ability to keep pace with the national brand. We cue off them also in terms of new technologies, new innovations, new flavors that they might be bringing in because Mm -hmm. a big part of the role of the giant brand is to offer the quality of a national brand, but at a better price for the customer. Mm -hmm. So yes, by nature, the brand (laughs) is designed to offer that national brand equivalent solution for the customer. So we have to. Right. Cue off of what the national brands are doing. But that's not 
everything. We look to develop items where we think, hey, there isn't a branded solution that mm-hmm. the category can bring in to solve this. So let's us go out and develop it first and be first to market. Right. Um, in the space of private brands, that can't always be the case that you're the first to market. Um, but when it happens, it's really pretty interesting. And it, it's terrific to see because it's really the type of project you can hang your hat on to say, look, yeah. we know customers, we know shoppers in this environment are very open to private label. We know that the trust is there for private label mm-hmm. beyond which it has been in the past. So why can't we take the risk and be first to market and really be the trailblazers to mm-hmm. say, here's something we have available that you might not have seen before. So mm-hmm. pay attention to this and, and have trust to purchase this. Okay. So you've alluded to kind of two different segments here. The first is the private label side. So you're finding a product and you're saying, okay, I can buy that from a supplier and put our name on it and we can put it to market. And then there's the other side where you're going through full product development and you're kind of first to market or you're placing yourself into a market that you couldn't find someone to private label for you. So how do you kind of go about evaluating like which route should we go and then what are the nuances of going down those different roads? Yeah, and you can have a supplier that actually covers both that spans both you can have a supplier that says look everybody's in this business everybody's in this game of this item you and it's a gap for you you really need to just pick up this item to round Mm -hmm. yourself out because it's a big sales opportunity miss for you and just pull this in the formula is ready to go here you go we'll put it in your label and, and make it available to you and that's great and and that happens but then that same supplier we can work with to say, we want to develop a formula unique to us because mm-hmm. we've identified that this is where we want to be. And so let's go work on that together. So um, within my team, we have product development managers as well. And, and they're food scientists by nature. Some have culinary degrees. That's and their cool. job is to go out and help us refine ideas with suppliers. Hmm. So the largest portion of my team um, is business-minded. Um, they're essentially category managers of the private brand space um, and they'll help identify the business opportunity but when it comes to how do I turn that into actually something that works from a product perspective especially if we're speaking to food items then the product development manager will go work with the supplier to make the refinements necessary because they know the lingo they can talk the talk they know what needs to be done that's interesting yeah so you have almost like this in-house expert that goes to the supplier and says you know there's like let's say you're making like a pineapple jalapeno salsa like there's not enough jalapeno in that you need to add more or it's it's not sweet enough or it's not salty enough or it's not acidic enough or whatever it is and they have that expertise that they're able to go and do that yeah absolutely and sometimes for those of us who come from a business background can't necessarily articulate why we think something's not perfected right Um, and then it's great to work with these folks who will come in and say (laughs) okay Casey I think you're saying that because of this I think it might be this and if we dial up that and um, you know, what, whatever that solution is, they're the ones that are able to articulate that and yeah. then work with the R&D folks of our suppliers to perfect mm-hmm. it. So it is, it's really cool. And, um, you know, the number of folks it takes to be involved in a project before a product launches is many more than you would probably ever realize. Oh, sure. um, dozens. We have dozens of folks just along the process, and it's everything from helping us design labels to make sure those labels are safe, to make sure our suppliers are safe, um, up and down the line. It, so it's a lot of hands involved. 
in order to take something from idea to shelf. Um, and I think it's really eye-opening to think about those handoffs and how much is involved to bring that to life. It takes an army. <laughs> Everything takes an army when we really think about it. <laughs> no, I think that's really neat. And the fact that, you know, these experts are able to articulate that, but then I'm sure that they're also bringing new ideas of like, hey, I think this would be something that would really sell. And when you go about that, do you do market research when they have an idea before you go and create prototypes of it? Or is it something that you're like, okay, like let's just run with it and see how it turns out? Yeah, I would say the good part and, and probably one of the biggest differences between um, private label and CPG is that the risk of failure or the cost of failure isn't as great. And okay. so because of that, we can be more nimble to say, mm -hmm. what's the worst that can happen? Um, let's give that idea a try. And if all the people that have to touch this from idea to shelf are blessing it and giving it the green light and are right. in support of it, then I think we probably have a pretty good shot to say this has legs or it has potential. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, because it's less of a risk, I would say the degree of research or the degree of analysis required mm -hmm. to test run that idea doesn't need to be as great, right. but that's not to short side what goes into actually creating the items. Hmm. So how do you take something that's been formulated, the packaging's done, all those different things, and bring it to market and make sure that it's placed correctly and that it starts to gain brand awareness and not necessarily brand awareness, but product awareness and traction within the marketplace. Yeah. So we have a fundamental set of guardrails that we bear in mind when it comes to things like, how are we going to develop this planogram? Where are the items going to sit on the shelf? Right. Um, what's the pricing strategy going to be? What's the promotional strategy going to be? We have guardrails mm -hmm. um, and those guardrails help inform our customer, which again is the giant company, make decisions to help those items most succeed. Um, so from that perspective, as it relates to all the P's except for marketing, <laughs> um, we really just help guide the brand, the yeah. giant company, in, in making decisions to help best make it su succeed or help it succeed. From a marketing perspective, then, we really lean on the marketing team within the giant company um, to help provide the traditional marketing support that you might think of. Um, okay. In our world, the ad or the circular still plays a really, really big role. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the giant company's customers still use that device pretty readily. Right. And so having placement in that piece becomes an important component of a marketing plan. Hmm. Um, but aside of that, it's, you know, we will appreciate any <laughs> tactic that the marketing <laughs> team is willing to provide to help support the launches um, and the items that we have on the shelf. So whether that is social outreach or email or signage within the store, radio that they run when you're shopping in the stores, what have you. I mean, the sky's the limit. Right. So um, really, we lean on them very hard to help determine what the right level of support is across the right channels. Right. And I'm sure that a lot of the times people will be just kind of perusing the aisles and they say, OK, I need you know, a spice rub. And they're looking at all the different products that are on the shelf and then they see like the nature's promise coffee rub or whatever it is and they're like oh maybe I'll try this and it's just kind of like those those different flavor profiles that 
you know, Giant Brand or Nature's Promise or Taste of Inspiration come up with are different enough that it just kind of piques your curiosity and you're like, I can do that and it's going to be something different than what I usually do. Yeah, and in that scenario, it's important for us to have solutions that could span the usage need, right? So yes. it could be, hey, I just need my traditional barbecue sauce, right. you know, that I want to be similar to maybe like a Ken's Steakhouse. So what do I have available there? Well, that's the role that the giant brand plays right. um, in that national brand equivalent space. But then if you want something that's organic or more of a clean free from formula, mm -hmm. then Nature's Promise fulfills that role. Right. But if I want something premium and really differentiated from a flavor profile perspective, that's where Taste of Inspirations comes in, right. into play. So it's really about having that full gamut of solutions across different brands all within the private label portfolio that really help influence the customer and help provide her solutions mm -hmm. based upon her different wants and needs, which could change by the day, the shopping Good. trip. Um, and so <laughs> the holiday. It's, right. <laughs> it's really about having that span of solutions. And, and because we're private label and because we have multiple brands that each have their own place and their mm -hmm. own specific role, it's fun because we can play in different segments and we yeah. can flex and um, we, you know, when we come to the solution that we're trying to create, we figure out what is the right brand to put this under. What would the customer expect out of right. us? This is perfect for nature's promise. Great. That, that solution works perfect yeah. for us. Do you ever find yourself duking it out between like, Ooh, this could play nature's promise. This could play taste of inspiration, or it could play giant brand. So as somebody who used to be the brand director for private label i would hope to tell you that the way in which we wrote the rule sets behind the brands is so abundantly clear that there's never any debate um, but i would be lying to you um yes there are times when we think well it would be positive for this to be the giant brand for mm -hmm. these reasons but it could also flex into nature's promise so would we want to make that the brand with which we go to market so right. sometimes it can be a little bit of a debate um <laughs> but i would like to say we tried to establish the brands and establish the guardrails behind the brands in a way that is pretty clear yeah. the role and the reason why we have these different brands in existence i can just envision like the uh like the big sumo suits that you can rent with the big like <laughs> ring of people just like duking it out like if i win this i get it if you do you get it <laughs> and in our world where we have five different sister companies that share um a lot of the same product and a lot of the same labels it, it can be a little bit of a conversation to say, if we were to develop this item, we envision it being in this label, whereas a different sister company might have a different idea. So there, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there could be times when it, it becomes a discussion point. Right. Um, because obviously the goal uh, is to align. Right. Uh, we want to make sure that if you're a, a customer or shopper in any one of the sister companies that you would be experiencing the same type of product under the same label, let's say if that's under nature's promise. So right. we do want to align. And really that's the purpose of my company, which is retail business services, because our job is to find ways to leverage synergy and scale. Mm -hmm. And so um, we do what we can to make sure we're op our portfolio is operating across all the companies versus right. doing you know things independently. So do you ever find that like, let's say, well, I'll go back to the coffee rub example just because it's there, but... Um, like you put it under nature's promise, but Hannaford's puts it under a taste of inspiration. Does that ever happen? No, we, okay. we really do try to align. So, so it has to be consistent. Yeah. And, and I'll, 
our team, while I have my uh, portion of the team that supports the giant company solely, mm -hmm. um, I also have counterparts that have similar teams across the various sister companies, Food Lion, Hannaford, right. Stop and Shop, you have it. So um, all of those peer groups work together because as they work together, they work smarter, not harder. So right. if someone has a terrific idea out of Hannaford, they will share that idea with their peer group up That's and down great. the East Coast. Yeah. So as they develop the item and bring it from idea to shelf for the other brands, it becomes as easy as them saying, I will also carry that item. Hmm. So once you develop it, I would be more than happy to put it in my planogram and sell it as well. So we really That's do work as a collective team. Right private brands team um, versus, you know, independently going our own way. Which also poses its own management, you know, obstacles and challenges because you're not just managing your own team and also reporting for your own team, but you're also kind of partnering with all these other people that have a voice in what you're doing. Yep. And we have to, you know, I have three direct peers um, and one of whom who oversees the stop and shop mm -hmm. um, company they you know he and I are on the phone all the time because we share 100% of our portfolio is shared across the board and so we're constantly making decisions collectively yeah um, because our business is 100% shared so yeah. it yes we need to lean on each other we need to communicate quite frequently um, we need to know what's important to our customer which again for me is the giant company so that as we turn that back into processes or procedures for the private brands team holistically we're representing those needs and um, you know influencing the decisions that come out of the private brands team at large so yeah very connected um, <laughs> in touch all the time so yes. the way in which the private brands team operates requires as much time commitment effort as it does to manage the business for the giant company it's insane yeah it's fun it's a fun job I'm sure it is especially the product development and like having all the new ideas and you know being able to test all the new ideas has got to be a lot of fun yeah and it doesn't end there. I mean, it's, you know, the basics of our business is making sure we have product on the shelf to sell. And in this environment, more than any other, yeah. um, you know, with our, we work with several hundred suppliers and making sure we understand where they're at at any given point in time during a pandemic Yeah, gosh. Um, to protect our supply chain is, has really required hands-on, you know, prioritizing that side of the business. Because if you don't have product on the shelf, you cannot satisfy your right. customer. Um, and so more than ever, that's become, you know, what used to be fundamental to our business uh, and always the most important thing to mm -hmm. have product there uh, in, in this environment is requiring a lot more time and effort in order to protect that than yeah. ever before. Talk about management challenges. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Casey. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add? No, thanks for having me. Appreciate Anytime. it. Thank you so much. Casey, you can find her on LinkedIn and you can also follow the giant company um, on all different platforms depending on what you're looking for from them. So be sure to check that out. 
Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much. And as always, every meal is better shared. Feel free to share a fork and lens with your team, colleagues, and friends. If you've enjoyed today's message, please subscribe to get weekly access to new recipes for creative and marketing success. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate those. You can also check us out at forkandlens.co or viscal.co. Until next time.